thankful again to be with you this evening, and I appreciate so much the, the good songs that we've been led in, uh, both this morning and this evening, especially the song that we just sang. I was having a conversation about the uh, kind of the uh, process or the progress of this sermon, and, and uh, as I was going through this personally, that song, I Need Thee Every Hour, was the song that was always on my mind and, and something that I, I would sing and, and think about and meditate on so often. So I really appreciate uh, leading us in that particular song. I had some time to get to spend uh, a little bit more time with some of the members here, primarily the elders and their wives uh, today, but I was also able to uh, sit in on the podcast and just really, really enjoying getting to know all of you and to see the work that's going on here. Uh, really encouraged by it, and I'm thankful again that I've been invited to, uh, to be working with you this week. I want to remind you that this is a gospel meeting, as you know, but that I'm here to work with you. And I hope that you'll be able to arrange some Bible studies while I'm here. This is certainly a time for all of us to be built up, but it's also a, an evangelistic effort to reach your neighbors and your friends and the people that you work with. And I've done my best to prepare these lessons so that each one of them is going to address maybe a different aspect. Uh, so you can bring your friends, you can bring your family members. Uh, I'm certainly going to do everything in my power not to be unnecessarily abrasive or offensive. I'm, I'm going to uh, try to put the word out there. And as the old preachers would say, to hide myself behind the cross of Christ. And I'll do the best I can, but I need you to bring those people or to arrange Bible studies with them to make this meeting as successful as we can possibly make it. I appreciate so much your prayers and, and every effort that you've made, but uh, let's make sure that we keep our eyes on that. I, I know that you have a list of the sermons this week. Uh, I would mention to you Tuesday night, uh, I think we've announced that I'm going to be speaking on calling on the name of the Lord. Uh, that would probably be the best night of the week to bring your friends uh, with a denominational background to consider whether or not, uh, uh, for all of us to consider, are we saved and how do we know? And what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Sometimes uh, folks like to know, when, when's the best night to bring some visitors with me? And I would say certainly that, that would be the case. Um, this evening we're going to continue a study that we began this morning from Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12 we noticed in verse 1 where the scripture tells us, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We introduce this passage as I ask the question, what do you want more than anything else in life? If it could be granted to you, what would you want more than anything else? We know the correct answer to that as children of God that, that we would want to be in heaven more than anything. But what we're trying to do is to, be, uh, to make sure that we're being honest about that. And if we really do want to be in heaven more than anything, then we would do whatever it takes to get there. And this passage stands out as a key to being able to accomplish that with more certainty, with more ease. And it, and it accomplishes that because he speaks about laying aside every weight in order to run with endurance. We recognize that weight equals hindrance, not necessarily sinful things, but things that are not helpful and therefore they distract, 
they encumber us, they hinder us in various ways, and we've got to be able to identify those things. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful, and we're not going to let ourselves be brought under the power of these things. While they may not be sinful in and of themselves, there are a lot of things in this life that can actually bring us under its spell, maybe a hobby or an interest, other things that may become addictive to us. Uh, we, we've got to make sure that we're not allowing ourselves to fall into that trap. So within what is lawful, there are things that are not helpful to us. We have to have the maturity to recognize those things and lay them aside. We also pointed out the fact that if it really is our desire to finish, we're going to shed that weight. And what you're willing to lay aside actually uh, uh, reveals the degree of your desire to finish. What are you willing to lay aside? You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24, Paul uses the metaphor of a race there as well. And he talked about how he disciplines his body and brings it into subjection. And he tells us that we're all running a race for that, for that eternal crown. And he said in verse 24, run in such a way that you may obtain it. And that's exactly what we want to uh, uh, draw from this study is, is the exhortation to learn how to run this race, to live our life in such a way that we're actually going to obtain that heavenly crown. You know, as we're looking at this particular uh, uh, metaphor of, of uh, uh, this race, and these weights. I want to be very clear. Race is merely a metaphor in Hebrews 12 and in verse 1 for the striving, the discipline, and the effort of the Christian's life struggle to get to heaven. And it's a beautiful and accurate metaphor of that. Weight is a metaphor for the things of this life that drain our spiritual energy, that exhaust us, and that finally hinder us from finishing. So we started looking at some of the things that accomplished that. We saw that the key is our desire, our value, because where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. The weights that hinder us, we looked at one this morning, and that is the desire for worldly success. Do we want to be great in God's eyes or in man's eyes? And we noticed the fact that Jesus did not come to accomplish worldly or temporal success. He came to serve God. We've got to do the same thing. And it's a weight because we may have to lose some of those things in order to be faithful to God, just like Daniel had to be willing to, like uh, Moses and Paul had to be willing to. Jesus gives us that exhortation. We also saw that this is not just something for men that are out here in the field working and moving up, getting promotions, but certainly women are uh, affected by this tremendous pressure and this temptation as well. Women today are, are, try, are, are deceived into thinking that they can have it all. I want to tell you, none of us can have it all. None of us can have it all. We can have it all as a Christian in heaven someday, but in this life, it is made in such a way, God has created things in such a way that you can't have everything. You have to narrow your focus down on some things. And the first thing that we've got to realize is what our priority is and do well at that if we don't do anything else. And too many times we're exhausting ourselves with things that God doesn't even call on us to do. And it's hindering us from doing the things that He has called us to do. We need to be honest with ourselves and as I pointed out, as men, as, as those who, who are supposed to be leading our family and the head of our house, we need to be looking out for the spiritual welfare of our children. We need to be looking out for the spiritual welfare of our wife. 
We need to make sure that we are enabling her to be everything that she can in the Lord. And when we see those things that are affecting, uh, uh, that, that's affecting us or our children or our wife, we need to have the leadership and the love to say, we're going to have to step back from that for a while. We're having that conversation before services this evening that, that my wife and I have had to do that with our kids' sports and, and other things like that because sometimes you've got to stop and simplify. That, that's a lot of what this lesson's about. We've got to simplify our lives sometimes and lay aside those weights so that we do at least one thing really well. You know, sometimes we do a whole lot of things, none of them very well. We need to simplify and do this one thing if we don't do anything else. And ladies, don't forget that principle. Men, don't forget that principle. We saw that sometimes we're pursuing a job at the cost of God and we can never afford to do that. I want to go on to the second thing I identified in my life that was weighing me down. And that was this desire, that, this desire for worldly friends. When I, when I talk about this desire for worldly friends, I probably could actually title that a desire for popularity. Because what I'm talking about is that insatiable desire for people of the world to approve of us and befriend us. You know that, that feeling you have when you're afraid that all the other parents in your kid's class are going to be upset with you because your kid can't do what their kids do? When all the other parents on the team are going to be upset with you because your kid can't play in that game, it's on a Sunday morning. I'm telling you, if your kids are in sports, you've experienced that. And there is that pool, there's that draw that, all right, I, I don't want to make anyone mad at us. And, and, and I don't, you know, we can rationalize that I don't want to hinder their, their desire to go to church with us and to be a Christian. And, and if they see that everything's so hard and we're so strict, it, it's amazing how we can rationalize how to compromise the Lord's will. And it's because we're, we're trying to keep from offending anyone. I know the Lord tells us in Romans chapter 12, as much as lies within you, be at peace with all men. Certainly, but that does not mean that we are to compromise God's will in order to have that peace with all men. Jesus said in Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 10, do not think that I came to bring peace. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. There are going to be certain aspects of our life where we're not going to be at peace with unbelievers. Unfortunately, even with brethren at times. And so we've got to realize that, that our focus is to do the Lord's will. That is not always going to bring popularity. You look at how fickle the popularity of Jesus was. They were wanting to make him a king and just immediately after they're hanging him on a cross. That's the way that people are. We cannot crave that kind of popularity. And I believe that that's why in the book of James, the Lord warns us about trying to be a friend of the world. He tells us in James 4 and verse 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That word enmity meaning that we're enemies with. We're in opposition to the cause of God. He's not saying that we can't have friends who are out here in the world or unbelievers. Some of the, uh, our, our great prospects are going to come from those people that have befriended us or that we've become acquainted with at work or at school. We need to be friendly. We need to be a good friend to people. What he's talking about is being a friend with the world, where we are not in opposition to the world and its effort to pollute people's lives. We need to be in staunch opposition to the world. That doesn't mean that I'm in opposition to every person who's an unbeliever. I'm in opposition to the kingdom of this world. 
the prince of the power of the air. We're in opposition to those things. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we're casting down every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And in order to do that, it's going to bring me into certain circumstances where some folks aren't going to like me. Some people are going to be unhappy with me. And that is one of those conflicts, one of those tug of wars that I was describing where you feel so exhausted as a Christian. Well, it's because you're trying to please everybody and you can't do that. Please the Lord. Please the Lord. You know, one of the areas where we are especially tempted in this way is in the friendships and the relationships that we build, but young people especially in that relationship that we refer to as dating or courting, as we're a, a, a young person looking for that person that we're going to marry. We talked about it in the first hour of our, of our uh, in our Bible class hour this morning. You know, many times people will ask me, Brett, is it, is it wrong, uh, uh, is it a sin to date a Christian? Is it a sin to marry, or I'm sorry, date a non-Christian? Is it a sin to marry a non-Christian? You know, I, I, certainly I would answer that no. Uh, we find Christians that are married to non-Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. God tells them to stay in that relationship. If it was a sin to be married to a Christian, the way to repent would be to get out of it. Uh, absolutely not. However, there are certain warnings in the Bible that we need to consider seriously. What are the dangers that are involved there? And I want you to think with me about that. First of all, in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse, 50, uh, verse 33, I'm trying to talk as fast as Kevin and I, can, I just can't do it. <laughs> I, I heard him speak today with Bob and I thought, man, I got to learn that. <laughs> Getting tongue tied here. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33. Do not be deceived, evil company corrupts good habits. I, I know that the context of this in 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about false teachers, those that deny the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. However, this is a principle that holds true that he applies to those false teachers. It's like when Jesus said in Matthew 19, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. He applied that to marriage, but I want to tell you that principle is true whether you apply it to marriage or anything else that God joined together. You don't put that asunder. And so here he says that evil uh, company corrupts good habits. That's going to apply throughout our life. And, and what we are rationalizing in our minds many times is, well, you know, I, I'm going to have a good influence on them. That's what I used to tell my parents. I, I'm going to be a lot. I'm going to be a good influence on them. That's a great thing. You're going to have a lot of opportunities to do that. But that doesn't mean that you need to spend all your time with someone who is worldly. Because there's something, you know, in, in, I didn't learn a whole lot in science or math, as you, you found out earlier this morning. But one of the things I remember about science is this thing called thermal equilibrium. It's a really simple principle. You put hot and cold water together, and you end up with lukewarm water. You know, they're both changed. And when you put a Christian in the constant company of a worldly person, is there going to be some influence on that worldly person? Most likely, yeah, but there's going to be influence the other way too. We have to have the maturity to know when we need to remove ourselves from that situation, recharge our batteries, when we've got to go back and be built back up spiritually. We can't leave ourselves in that environment all the time and survive it. And so when we are in, in a dating relationship, what happens with young people is they want to be together all the time, don't they? You want to be on the phone or, or, or texting, communicating, seeing one another. And all of that 
influence. It's going both ways. You may be influencing them for the good. They're also influencing you. They're also pulling you back down. You've got to make sure that, that you're not spending so much time that they're having that type of an effect on you. In Proverbs chapter 12 and in verse 26, the righteous should choose his friends carefully for the way of the wicked leads them astray. That's what we were talking about this morning, finding a true helpmeet, someone who's actually going to help you get to heaven. And I want you to think about how difficult it is to be dating someone, falling in love with someone who does not share your faith, your love for the Lord, your values. There is a, a conflict at the most basic foundational level in your life. And I mean a serious conflict. You might be able to look the other way and ignore it, but here's the problem. You say, well, I'll never marry them. Well, when you let yourself start becoming emotionally attached to that person and you're falling in love with that person, you're creating bonds that are going to leave scars when you break them. It's going to hurt you deeply. That is not an easy thing to do. And I want to tell you, there's no one in this world that is going to have a greater influence on you and that you're going to want to have their approval more than the person that you fall in love with. That's why you can't afford to make that person a non-Christian. Because in order to have their approval with all the conflicts you're going to have in, in the way that you dress and the entertainment that you take part in and in, in, in the, in the uh, uh, language that you use, in, in what you're willing to, to do and participate in on a date, there's constant conflicts. And when you are craving their approval because you're falling in love with them, you're going to make yourself absolutely miserable. I know of what I speak about. And during this time when I was living in Dallas-Fort Worth and I was going through all of these conflicts, wondering why it's so hard to be a Christian, do you know what one of the primary things was that was going on in my life? I was dating a non-Christian. And I found myself absolutely miserable, pulled apart, because she didn't want to be around Christians. She would go to church some, but she didn't really want to spend time with other Christians. Didn't agree with the, with the doctrinal foundations of the gospel. She was denominational and really wasn't that interested in studying. And here's the problem. I didn't figure that out, that she wasn't interested in studying until I'd already become emotionally attached, until I started to care for this person. And it was a hard thing to walk away from at that point. You don't want to get there. What you want to do is you want to find out what kind of heart that person has. And, and we're going to talk about this tomorrow night. But you know, this right here is the litmus paper. When you present the truth to a person, go back and read the parable of the sower. It is the ABCs of God's Word, the phonics of God's Word. If I want to know if a person has a good and honest heart, how do I find out? I share the truth with them. The Lord tells us that the way that that person responds to the truth is a reflection of their heart. I hear Christians a lot of times saying, well, you know, they didn't, they didn't receive the truth, but they've got, I think they've got a good and honest heart. Not if you share the truth with them and they rejected it. Because the parable of the sower says that the good ground, the good and honest heart, receives the seed, makes use of the seed, obeys the gospel, and bears fruit from that seed. Every time. Always. If it's good ground, that's what's going to happen. Every time. And so the key here is, young people, 
you meet someone who is not a Christian, but they have all of these characteristics and these qualities. Let's say, for instance, they are uh, a Cornelius, okay? I remember a preacher telling me one time, Brett, you know, I'd rather my daughter marry a Cornelius than a Diotrephes. Amen. Amen. I'm not saying that they've just got to come in the, in the doors and sit in the pew, and then you can marry them. But you might meet someone who has all of these characteristics, but you're not sure yet if they, if they have that honest heart. Before you develop that romantic, emotional attachment, start studying with them. Develop a friendship. Get a Bible study with them. See how they respond to that objectively without the distraction of all of these emotions going on. Find out. If you see that they don't deal honestly with the truth, run. Flee. You cannot afford to fall in love with that person. That's what God's warning us about. You know, this was shared with me a number of years ago. A gospel preacher had, had done an, an unscientific, in, informal uh, uh, study of, of Christians that he knew who had married other Christians and Christians who had married non-Christians. And I found it interesting because really it lines up with what I've seen in my years of preaching or in my years of, of being a Christian. And out of those Christians who had married other Christians, he could think of 112 at that point in his life. And out of 112 Christians who had married other Christians, eight of them left the Lord. They fell away. Christian marrying another Christian. It happens. 104, 93% of them remained faithful to the point that he did this particular study. 4% of them ended up divorced. Now, when he considered those who were non-Christians, he could think of or Christians who married non-Christians, he could think of 149 of them. Interesting to me that there were more Christians he could think of who married non-Christians than Christians. Out of 149 Christians who married non-Christians, 106 of those Christians left the Lord. 71% lost everything. Let that sink in. Can you imagine if I, maybe on the side, I, I was a financial advisor and while I'm in town, I said, hey, by the way, I don't know if any of you are interested, but I, I can manage your retirement and, and, and all your financial affairs. You say, well, well, Brent, what kind of success rate do you have? I said, well, I've, I've got about a 71% failure rate. Would you invest your money with me? And we're not even talking about money here. We're talking about a person's eternal soul. And I want you to think even more seriously. If these people fell away, what about the children? What about the children? There's nothing more valuable than these wonderful investments that God gives us. And not only that, we see that 29% remained faithful. 44 of them, 30% ended up divorced. Now here's the real key. You know what we always hear a person say is, well, I'm going to convert them after we're married. 18%. 18% of those were converted after they were married. Now, I know several of you are sitting there uh, thinking, well, my spouse wasn't a Christian when I married him, and look at them now. I'm not saying that it never happens. I, I have family members just like that. I'm not saying it never happens. But what I want you young people to realize is it's the exception and not the rule. This is the reality of it. You are taking your eternal soul and the souls of your children into your own hands at great 
great risk. And the fact that you are going to be so moved by their approval or disapproval is going to add and multiply to that difficulty exponentially. Yes, this desire to be approved of by people of the world is a real thing. And, and what happens when we, are, when we are craving that approval from the world is we little by little become, uh, uh, we start to try to become like the world more and more. And we rationalize it by saying, well, you know, you're not going to reach people by being some kind of, uh, of a Bible-thumping uh, uh, a nut about Christianity. You know, you, you've got to, people got to see that we're real and we're like them and that we're normal. You've got to be more in touch, maybe, with the world. Is that right? You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17, the Bible tells us to come out from among them. In 2 Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 6 and in verse 17, I want you to remember where the Apostle Paul is, is warning them in, about this fellowship with the world. And he says, therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I'll receive you. Brethren, I would suggest to you the problem in the Lord's church is that too many cases, Christians are too in touch with the world. The reality is that we don't reach people by being more like the world. We reach people by being different from the world. You know, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 15, he tells us that we are to sanctify the Lord God in our heart and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Why do people ask you a reason for that hope that is in you? It's because they see something different in you. And when they don't see that you're any different than they are, you're a good person, they're a good person too in that, in that measure of things. But they see that, that you get down about things, you don't rejoice in tribulation, you're miserable, maybe talk about other people, kind of joke about things that are coarse and worldly because you don't want to make them feel weird. You, you want them to know that you're a normal guy too. They're not going to ask you for any reason because that does not reflect any hope. We're going to draw people by our difference from the world, and we've got to be separate in order to accomplish that. Yes, this desire for popularity is going to pull us in, and it's something that I definitely struggled with in my own life. You know, another thing that I, I recognized in my life, and I think that other people can relate to, is this craving, this desire for pleasure or fun. Just like that desire for popularity or, or the approval of people of the world, it's not inherently sinful, but that desire for it is going to pull us. The same with this. You know, having fun, I'm all about that. Recreation is a good thing. Think about that word, recreation, recreation. We need some time to recharge our batteries. God, God understands that we need rest, that we need some recreation. We need to have some time off. That, that's a good thing. But I remember a, a preacher in a meeting one time uh, saying, you know, recreation is kind of like an electric wire. We get a hold of it, and then it gets a hold of us. <laughs> it doesn't want to let us go. It's like that person that goes out and buys a boat, and they, they start out, you know, we're going to take this to the, out to the lake, you know, once a month, and then pretty soon it's every weekend, and pretty soon they're staying there on Sunday. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to buy a boat, and I'm not saying it's wrong to go to the lake, but what I'm saying is that's the way that things like this work. We get to where we can't let go of it. We want more, and we want more. 
the discussion we were having before services this evening. That's the way our hobbies work. I've got some interests, I've got some things that I like to do, and, and back when you would get magazine subscriptions, I'd have to cancel them for a while. I don't need to get those magazines, I don't need to, I don't need to see about this hobby, I don't need to be thinking about that so much. Or, or maybe it's a, now it, it's mostly what we view on the internet, things like that. We can get consumed with this. And, and that's exactly the way that it works. You know, 2 Timothy chapter 3 has something to say about this, how pleasure is deceitful and it actually can bring us into bondage. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul is talking about latter days when perilous times will come in verse 1. And in verse 2 he said, Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. Sounds like a pretty sorry lot, right? But listen to what he says unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then he said, having a form of godliness but denying its power from such people turn away. What that tells me is that these people that are lovers of pleasure, not necessarily sinful pleasure, these people have a form of godliness. They look pretty good. They have a veneer, they have a facade of Christianity, but it doesn't go deep. You see that denying its power? What these people are doing is they're denying the power of the gospel in transformation. They're not truly changing inwardly. You know, the outward man is perishing, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. This person that loves pleasure more than God is not being renewed day by day. That person is, is denying its power. They're not letting themselves go there. And he said, you need to get away from someone like that. It's a dangerous thing. It's a deceptive thing. I want, I want you to think about this. We are living in a time and have been for quite some time where we are so much more prosperous than generations before. I listened to my parents. My dad grew up in the Great Depression, and I listened to his life as a kid. I listened to what my parents, what they lived on when they were first married. And I'm telling you, we haven't known that for a long time. Things are good. And I think that those who grew up in that time wanted to give their kids something that they never had. And we've almost gone to another extreme to where we're, we're just inundating our kids with, with all of this that we couldn't do. And part of that is all of the recreation, all of the fun, whether it's theme parks or it's sports or it's whatever hobby or interest that they're involved in. And we're just drowning them in it because we've got to make sure that they're having this balance. And, and they work so hard at school and so we've got to make sure they do all of this. Uh, Again, there is a place for that. But what we've got to realize is that sometimes we are un unknowingly maybe keeping our kids so busy in recreation. And, and for me, it was in team sports for my kids. In whatever form of recreation it is or whatever interest they have, sometimes we're keeping them so busy they don't have time to exercise themselves rather unto godliness. You see these kids coming into, into church after ball games and they're still in their uniform and they're just, whew, you know, they can't even stay awake. I mean, I, I commend the parents, they're here. But the kids are spread thin running here and there and yonder to this game and that game and that game. We enjoyed that. But like I said, we've got to be able to do that personal audit, maybe ask for input from other Christians. 
Am I going too far with this? Because I want to tell you, there's a lot of parents that are. And there's times that Jennifer and I have had to struggle with that very thing. Recreation is not the most important thing in my kid's life. Now, if I'm trying to live through them, and if I'm wanting to impress people with what my kids are doing, I'm going to think it is. But it's not. Being godly is. Going to gospel meetings, having time to drive across the county or to another area, a location, to go to a gospel meeting and singing hymns on the car. Have we forgotten how to do that? And, and you know what? what the, the greatest time that we can spend with our boys, dads, is in teaching them how to work with their hands, what is good. How to learn how to fix things and, and take care of mom and, and, and uh, go in and mow a lawn for a widow. But to do work and to serve and the gratification that comes from that. And mom's the sweetest and best time that can be spent with your daughters is teaching them how to prepare a meal for someone who's sick that needs that. And the gratification that comes from hospitality. These are the things that we need to be teaching our kids. There's a place for recreation, but our culture has gotten to a point to where that's all these kids are getting. And I want to tell you what's happening is we're training them in self-indulgence. And that was the Achilles heel of Samson. He was a self-indulgent man. In Judges chapter 14 and verse 3, he wanted to marry this Philistine woman. His mother and father said, isn't there another woman among the Israelites? He said, get her for me. She pleases me well. That's all it was for him. We see him in three chapters with three different women. I realize in many regards he was a man of faith. He did some great things. But think about what he could have done, you know. His downfall was the self-indulgence. And I believe that we are falling into that trap with our kids when, we're when, when we are constantly trying to give them more and more of this recreation and this fun and this pleasure. I want you to think about what, what made the difference between Esau and Moses. You know, Esau we see in Hebrews chapter 12 and in verse 16. The Bible says that uh, uh, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. That's telling us a whole lot about Esau. But one of the things that I want to suggest to you is all Esau cared about was what he could get and have right now. There was, there was no foresight. There was no looking ahead and the value of this birthright. I'm hungry. I want to eat right now. And that's what we're training our kids in when every whim, every interest, every game, everything they want to do, we've got to drop everything and find a way to give it to them. We're not going to make good adults that way because I'm going to tell you, life isn't going to treat them that good. Their boss isn't going to treat them like that. Life is going to be hard for them if all they do is have fun. What they've got to learn is how to navigate through those difficult things. They need to have a job here or there and get treated bad, you know. Have a boss that, that doesn't always treat them fair. And then we coach them on how to cope with that. And that way, when they're out there on their own, they're not floundering. They've been through that. They can look back on this. And we had time to coach them and train them and teach them. Esau was a man that was caught up in himself. But Moses, in Hebrews eleven twenty four 24 through 26, 
When he became of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Not now, not what he could get now, but what he would receive later. Brethren, we've got to teach our children that as children, that you work and you wait and then you enjoy the blessing. Yes, this desire for pleasure or fun is a dangerous thing that can destroy us and make us lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then finally, the last thing that I identified in my life was simply the desire for wealth. I wanted to be a Christian, but I wanted to be a rich Christian. I wanted to be one who could have it all. And again, wealth is not inherently sinful, not by any means. But the desire for wealth is a tremendous weight. I want you to look with me in Proverbs chapter 23. In Proverbs 23 and in verse 4, I want you to notice what the Scripture says there. In verse 4 and verse 5 of Proverbs 23, the New King James says, Do not overwork to be rich. Because of your own understanding cease. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. The King James Version says, labor not to be rich. The American Standard Version, weary not thyself to be rich. The ESV, do not toil to acquire wealth. That's some pretty plain speech. The New American Standard Version, do not weary yourself to gain wealth. I want you to just stop for a minute. Honestly, honestly think about the time and the effort. We're talking about dual income, mom and dad both working, running back and forth, picking up kids, taking them here, taking them there. Got to be back at work, got this project going, got to get here. And, and it's because, well, you just can't make it on, on one income. We got to do this. And everyone is exhausted. Now come back and read this verse. Do not weary yourself to be rich. What are we doing it for? You say, oh, I don't want to be rich. I'm just trying to pay the bills. Who creates those bills? I mean, I realize we got to have a place to live. We got to have groceries. But I'm going to tell you, Jennifer and I could live in a lot simpler place than we do right now. We did when we were first married. It can be done. Our first house, $13,000. Little 900 square foot shotgun house. <laughs> yeah, I mean, things can get simple if you need them to. There's a whole lot of things we can do without. A whole lot of things that we can do without. But we've acquired this desire for so many things and we think, well, we got to pay all these bills. Well, one thing that a lot of people are doing is they're creating a lot of debt. It is this craving to have more somehow almost makes us to where we have less. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? Satan is so good at what he does. That carrot on a stick, he just keeps making us think that we're going to get it. And that's where the wise man is saying, do, do, you, do you not understand? These, wealth makes itself wings like an eagle and it flies away. You know, it reminds me of maybe when some papers blow out of your hand or your hat blows off your head and, and you run over there to grab it and right as you get to it, it blows a little bit further and you look around to see if anyone saw you because you feel like a fool and you go chase it again. That's what wealth is like. It, it's always just a few steps away. And he's telling us, don't give that kind of effort 
to go after it. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, he tells us in verse 9, those who desire to be rich. You see that? Underline that. Underline that in your Bible. It is not being wealthy. It is the desire because where your heart is or where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He said those who desire to be rich. That may be someone who, who is, is poor as a pauper. They don't have anything. But that desire to be rich, they will fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Look at the metaphors he uses. It drowns men in destruction. Have you seen someone, I remember as a kid, jumping in the, in the, in the farm tank, the, the pond out in the pasture, and I didn't know how to swim well enough, and it was deeper than I thought. And I can remember going down and, and bubbles and coming up, gasping for air and going down. My brother's, you know, trying to get me out of the pool. That's a scary thing. But you know, I see it in the lives of some people. They come up gasping and they think, oh, oh okay, I got some air. I'm okay. And then they go back down. And you see their life doing this spiritually. And you know, if you go and talk to them, they're going to get their hackles up and say, I'm not doing anything sinful. No, but you are carrying an incredible weight. You're trying to have it all. And that's what he's warning us about. And then pierce themselves through with many sorrows. It's the idea of taking these darts and stabbing oneself over and over again with them. In their greediness, they pierce themselves through with many sorrows. What a sad, sad thing. Jesus warns us that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. Luke chapter 12, beware beware of covetousness. You know, I, I know, I, I would argue this too. Well, Abraham was rich. Job was rich. Yes, they were. They were wealthy and they were faithful. And I, you will not find a passage of Scripture that shows Abraham pursuing wealth at the cost of God. You won't see him giving everything he's got to be wealthy. He lived in tents. He had no permanent home. He was willing to give his only son as a sacrifice to God. No, that was not a man that was craving and pursuing wealth. God made him rich. Job, he lost everything and he praised God. He was not a man that gave himself to wealth. He gave himself to his children's spiritual welfare. We need to understand it's not wrong to be rich. But what we've got to understand is that God understands and knows when and if we are capable of handling that challenge of wealth, because wealth is a challenge. And if we will surrender and leave it up to God, God will bless us with everything that we can handle. And He will fill our cup to running over. But we've got to lose the idea of this is how much I've got to get to be wealthy. You know, in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 24, Jesus said that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. That's not talking about a gate or a camel getting on his knees or all this stuff. He's talking about a camel. He's talking about a needle. It's a figure of speech called hyperbole. And it's an exaggeration to prove a point. And the point is there are challenges and difficulties that come with wealth. And some people are capable of handling that. You say, well, how do I know if I am? Leave it up to the Lord. Serve Him. Be a good steward of what He blesses you with. Don't let yourself fall into the curse of debt. 
Be a good steward. Be, be someone who works with your hands what is good to give to him who does not have. Provide for your family and serve the Lord first and the Lord will bless you with what you need. But don't crave it. Don't fall into that trap. This was something that was so difficult for me. And you know, as I was going through this, I, I was listening to all of these tapes, these motivational tapes about how uh, you ought to be able to have it all and, and have this well-rounded life that is, that is wealth and, and career and success and God. And the problem with that wheel, because I was struggling with that, the problem with that wheel is it puts God on an equivalent with all of these other goals. And that'll never work because they're all going to come into conflict at one time or another. God has to be the preeminent goal. That's what it's all about. And so he tells us, lay aside every weight. Why do we need to do that? Let's look back at the text. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 12. And I want you to notice with me, as he, as he tells us to lay aside every weight, why do we do it? He says, in order to run. In order to run is what he's talking about, to run this race. And he's talking about running it like our examples. Chapter 12 follows chapter 11, where he talks about in verses 25 through 38, that there were those who uh, uh, chose to suffer affliction uh, with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He talks about those who, uh, um, were, were, who through faith subdued kingdoms, verse 33. Verse 34, quenched the violence of fire. And then he talks about, in verse 36, some who had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. In verse 39, all these having obtained a good testimony through faith did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Therefore, since, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by what? So great a cloud of witnesses. These people in chapter 11 are the witnesses. They're giving testimony to you and I that this, the life that they lived, laying aside every weight, is the most gratifying life that we can live here. Because that's how we obtain that prize. We need to run like our examples. We need to run with endurance. And the only way that we're going to have the endurance to keep on keeping on is to minimize the, the encumbrances and the things that exhaust us spiritually. We need to run prepared for persecution. You know, in 2 Timothy, in chapter 2 and in verse 4, another passage that, that was one of those like this, Hebrews 12 and 1, that was really an epiphany when I, when I read that and I was going through this in my life. This passage in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 4, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Man, that's, that's powerful. That is just so real and true. When I was talking about simplifying life so that we can be a better servant to God, be a better husband, be a better father. You know, that's one of the things that I appreciated and noticed so much in 2020. I was telling the elders today that my oldest son, he, he, he put together a, a video uh, of all of the, the pictures and the videos from 2020 when we were all pretty well in the compound, you know, out on, out on the 10 acres and, and just together. Bible studies and campfires and, and hiking and, you know, we weren't busy with all the things that we would have otherwise been busy with. All the shopping and all the pursuits and, and all the work and all those things. 
And we had the sweetest, most memorable year probably of our existence together as a family. And it was because life was simplified. You know, sometimes it takes a bad thing to give us a gift like that to understand, you know what, I think we need to back off some of the things that we got caught up in. If we want to really be pleasing to God, he said, if you're truly a soldier, then you don't get entangled with all these affairs of life. You're ready at a moment's notice. Where are you at? Would that describe you? I know what it feels like to feel entangled. Every now and then I have to unwind and get out of it, crawl out of it, and get away from it. That's what I hope, that you're, uh, hope you're able to see. And really, it's in order to finish. But how do we do it? This is the practical part. How do we do it? Well, he tells us, looking to the author and finisher of our faith. You see that? Verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Well, what do we see when we look at him? We see his example. It says, who for the joy set before him, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. Isn't that incredible? He saw the joy before him, and so he endured that cross. He went through that. He laid aside every way. And you see that despised the shame? That goes back to that point about popularity or approval of our friends. To, the word despised means to think little of. Jesus thought little of the shame of the world was talking before services about how we overcome this craving for, for the praise of men. And this is very much like it. How do I cope with the shame and the criticism of men? Look unto Jesus. He thought little of it. You know what this reminds me of? When, if you're a senior in high school and a freshman comes up and makes fun of what you're wearing, does that bother you? It's a freshman. You probably rub his face in the grass, you know? You don't care what a freshman thinks about you when you're a senior. It's, it's who you consider to be your peers, who you look to for that kind of approval. Jesus thought little of the shame of this world because he knew who he was. He knew what he was doing. He had that identity down. He was the son of God. He knew his, who his father was, and he knew that he had the approval of his father. How about you? You know, that's going to help you let go and care little about the shame of this world. But we look to Jesus to see that. We look to his teaching. You know, in Matthew chapter 18, think about what Jesus said there in Matthew 18 and verses 8 through 9. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. Hold on a minute. My hand or my foot? He means it. There's not anything that is worth losing heaven for. And so when somebody says, well, surely he doesn't expect me to quit my job in order to be able to... Oh, no, no, don't quit your job. You should cut off your hand or foot, but don't lose that job, right? What Jesus is saying is there's nothing of a temporal nature that you shouldn't be willing to separate yourself from, to lay aside even your hand or foot if it's going to cause you to enter in to eternal condemnation. We need to see that teaching and understand what it means. We need to look at his zeal. In, in Mark chapter 3, remember in verse 21, his family came to him, his mother and his brothers and his sisters, and they wanted to stop him from his teaching. 
They called to him, and, and the people in the house told him, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are seeking you. And Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers, my sisters, those who do the will of God? He would not allow himself to be moved. That had to be a difficult point in his life. But Jesus' zeal for God would not allow anyone to move him from what was right. The real question is, do you really, really want to finish? Weight equals hindrance. Not necessarily sinful, but not helpful. And if the desire is to finish, there's nothing that you, would set, that you wouldn't set aside. But the key is, what do you desire? And, and I preach this sermon on Sunday of a gospel meeting because I hope it sets the tone for the rest of the week. What plans have you made this week? Are you going to be here every night? What's going to hinder you from this meeting? What's going to hinder you from bringing someone with you this week? What's going to keep you from that? Is it something that you could lay aside? Is it a commitment, an appointment, a meeting, a trip? Could you lay it aside? And what's more important? What we're going to do here just for a few nights? What we're doing right here or what you're going to be doing? Which one? We need to really rethink our priorities. If our, if our desire and our value is for eternal life, we're going to lay aside every weight for the joy that's set before us and we are going to acquire that goal of getting to heaven because we really do want it more than anything else. Where are you at this evening? If you haven't obeyed the gospel, that's where you need to start. You need to lay aside not only every weight, but you need to lay aside the sin. And you need to do that by coming to Jesus in faith as the Son of God and, and, and confess your faith in Him. Repent of your sins and be baptized in water for the remission of sins. Jesus' blood has the power to, to take away every sin in your life, and you can be born again, recreated anew in Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Talk about taking off a load. There's no greater weight that you can ever carry than transgression and sin that separates you from God. If as a child of God, you've allowed yourself to get entangled with the affairs of this world, if any part of this resonates with you and, and you need prayers, you, you need some accountability, you need to simplify whatever it is, that's why we have this fellowship. That's why you have one another. Don't be embarrassed or ashamed to ask your brethren to pray for you. Make a commitment that you're going to be real. You're not going to play church. You're going to be a Christian. And you're going to get as real and, a, and as determined and as zealous as you need to get to get there. But do you really want it? I hope you do. Whatever you need to do to accomplish that, we invite you to come and to make that known as we stand and sing the invitation song.